At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Today, we invite you to look deeper into 1 Peter, tuning into our current series, Unshakable, Steadfast Hope in an Unpredictable World. Join us as we allow God's Word to shape us and renew our hope with the brilliant truth of the gospel. Well, good morning. I'm really glad to see you this morning. I want to extend just a... a um, a word of thanksgiving and gratitude to uh, our church family for uh, the way you contributed candy over the last several weeks to, uh, to fuel and to fund the uh, Family Fall Fest last night and um, to the life groups that served and those who uh, participated in just helping set up and tear down and, and serving those uh, from our community that came out. Thank you so much and particularly to our staff team who worked so hard just to make sure that all the details were there. We just had a great environment and a great experience last night. So I just praise the Lord and want to just extend my, uh, my gratitude to our church family for uh, seeing a vision to reach out to our community and to love them and to just uh, have a great night um, uh, of fellowship together. It was a blast. We, the lawn was full back there with kids and families, and uh, we had a great time. And so thank you, church, so much for uh, seeing just that, that uh, need and, and loving to reach our community uh, so well. We're excited about that, and there are going to be some more opportunities for us as a church family uh, to continue to reach out uh, to our community in those unique ways here in the next few months, uh, particularly as well. So I'll uh, share more, more about one of those with you uh, a little bit later this morning, but thank you for just your generosity and your heart for mission um, there. Um, well, this morning we are uh, continuing our series. We're in the fifth week of our series uh, called Unshakable. And uh, I would love it if you would take your uh, copy of God's Word, if you have one with you, and open it up to 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. Uh, we're getting ready to kind of pull uh, the brakes a little bit. We've been flying through First Peter, and this morning we're going to just look at two verses um, that are there for us as we begin to kind of deep dive into uh, who we are and, and how God has called us and formed us as his people. So I would love it if you would find First Peter chapter 2, and let me read for us verses 9 and 10. Uh, so if you'd stand with me, let me take us to God's word there uh, together. The scripture says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your grace and mercy and kindness on us. That we would even gather this morning as an evidence of your grace to us. And Lord, uh, in these days we need clarity from you on who we are and why we're here. And so Lord, this morning, would, would we hear your word? Would your spirit take what is yours? And would he have freedom to work among us? Would he shape us? Would he identify us? Lord, would you call us to yourself again? Let us see and taste that you are good and to worship you in all things. Lord, help me as I preach. Help us as we listen. Might we be people who hear your word and do it and so please you in all things. We give ourselves to you now. Speak, we say, O oh Lord. Amen. Well, recently I read a story about a community, uh, and a particular individual 
in, uh, in Russia back in uh, the era of the Tsar, Tsarist Russia. And there was a particular community where a priest was walking through that community one evening. And, and it was the uh, capital community. And as this priest was walking through the community, minding his own business, taking a time to walk and to pray and, and to think through his city, he came near the palace. And as he got closer to the palace, a royal guard stopped him. He was surprised to see someone out walking around so late in the evening, but there he was, and, and the guard was stunned, and he, and he stopped, and he shouted at the priest and pointed his gun at him, and he said, what is your name? Why are you here? Where are you going? Well, as you can imagine, if you're walking in the dark in the evening uh, in a medieval time uh, community and someone you know, points a gun at you and, and nails, uh, yells out your name or yells out, who are you, why are you here, what are you doing, you'd be a little stunned too. And the priest himself was startled and, and, uh, and yet he had his wits about him and he was able to, to perceive what was happening. And he, and he said to the soldier who was there, he said, he said to him, son, young man, how much do they pay you to do this? How much do they pay you to stand out here and to shout at strangers in the dark and <laughs> ask them why they're here? And that stunned the soldier himself. I mean, that's kind of an unusual question from someone you're trying to get some answers from. But nonetheless, he heard the question and he responded back and he said, why, I, I get paid three kopecks a month. Three kopecks a month. That was the Russian currency at the time. And, and the priest said to the, to the young man, to the soldier, he said, well, how about this? I'll pay you 30 kopecks a month, 10 times what you're making, if every week as I walk by you and pray, you stop me and ask those same questions. I think that points out the uh, importance of those questions themselves. Who are you? Why are you here? And where are you going? They're core fundamental questions to our existence and our life. And we, often, we often ask these questions about ourselves uh, without knowing it. We're thinking about them. Why am I here? Who am I? Where am I going? What is my life all about? They're, they're questions that we grapple with and we build identities and worlds and meanings around for ourselves. And yet I think they're some of the most important questions in the world. We have to have answers to these questions. And so I would ask you this morning to think about those questions for yourself. Who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? They're not just questions that each one of us need to answer or to think about individually, but they're questions that we need to think through and address personally, specifically, and corporately as the church. They are, they are fundamental questions of our existence, of our purpose as the church of Christ here today in this community and in this time. Who are we, Woodside Bible Church? Why do we exist? Where are we going? They're essential. And if we, if we answer these questions well and right, we will fit under the framework and under the mission that God has for us. We will see him work powerfully through us. But if we are off in the answer to these questions, if we define these answers in any other way, we'll find our lives and our church adrift. We'll find ourselves moved by anything that culture or the world says we should be about. We'll find ourselves not powerfully used by the Spirit of God, but maybe experiencing something substandard, sub-Christian, even to what we are called to. As I mentioned this morning, it's the fifth week, weekend in our series called Unshakable. We're looking at the steadfast hope we have in an unpredictable world, and, and certainly that's exactly how it feels. 
The Apostle Peter has written this letter of 1 Peter to a church, to Christians who are facing persecution and, and trial from the Roman government. They've been scattered all over the known world. They've had to flee. And he writes to these elect exiles, as he says in verse 1, these scattered Christians, to remind them of who they are, to remind them of what their purpose is, to remind them of how to live distinctly in the world that hates them so much. Peter has pointed out where their hope and where our hope comes from, what makes our lives unshakable in the midst of, of unsteady times, and that hope that he has pointed out has been nothing less than Jesus Christ himself. Christ is our living hope. He is our sure foundation. And in the passage we saw last week in verses 4 through 8, Peter identifies that Christ is the cornerstone. If, if our lives are built, if our church is built on Christ as the cornerstone, as the most important, the preeminent stone, the, the one from whom all else derives from, if our lives are built on Christ, then everything will be shaped for him and through him and to him. But there's a world of unbelievers that, that don't build off of Christ, the cornerstone. And that's what Peter's pointed out. In fact, they've rejected Christ as the cornerstone and decided to build lives on their own things. And so what do they do? They trip over Christ. They stumble over him. They're unbelievers. And Peter says that's essentially displayed because they do not obey the word of God. But is that who we are? Well, Peter, Peter speaking to the church today, speaking to us as followers of Jesus, he has a good word for us. He doesn't see us in that light as those who trip over and stumble over Christ and disobey his word. But instead, Peter wants us to see who we truly are. And that's what verses 9 and 10 really are focused on. These are two of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. They are two of the verses that I have to come back to regularly so that my life is shaped and my ministry is shaped. So our church is shaped by what Christ has called us to. I love these verses, and I would encourage you to take them up for yourselves, to memorize them, to place them in your heart, because they form for us the framework and the passion for what we're all to be about. Those great questions, who are you, why are you here, and where are you going, are answered in these two verses. If I could summarize it for you in this way and just kind of help you see what these two verses point out to us, they are this, that believers are God's redeemed people. That you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, if you have turned from your sin and embraced Jesus alone as your Lord and Savior, that you as a believer are God's redeemed people. You say, well, that's nice, but what does that mean? What does that really look like? What are the implications that are here for us in that? I want to take us to these three fundamental questions. Who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? And I want to help us see how Peter would help us answer those questions this morning. How do, how do we, people, friends here at Woodside Bible Church this morning in October of 2020, how do we answer those questions? If we can see those questions answered well and engage and embrace them in our own lives, I believe we'll be right in the center of what God has called us to. And he'll be using us and working within us in deep, deep and powerful ways. So let's answer them. Let's first of all answer the question of who are you in your identity. That starts with knowing who you are. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? We, we live in a world that is always asking that question. Identity is the big issue. 
And we're always trying to figure it out. And it's one of the troubling issues of our time is that we're really confused by our identity as a people, as a culture. We long to put labels on everything. We long to embrace identities left and right. Whatever we can find, we want to be identified with. And what I'm afraid of for the Christian, most importantly, is that we are missing or ignoring the most important identity over us, the most important label that we would have. Brothers and sisters, who are you? Who are we? Who are we? Are you identified most importantly by who you vote for? Your political party? The agenda of that is party identity, politic, political identity, what identifies us? Maybe it's your sexual preference. You say, that's what identifies me. That's who I am. That's, that's what it's all about. Maybe for some of you, your identity is built around and based upon your career and your vocation. I am this or that. Maybe it's your Enneagram number, and that's how you identify yourself most importantly. Or your personality test, Myers-Briggs, whatever one goes for you. Nine, by the way. What is it that you identify and say who you are? Who are you? Well, Peter here helps us figure it out. He helps us understand. For the Christian, here is who we are. The church, here's who you are. Look with me in verse 9. You are a chosen race. You are there, okay? Identity. Here's who you are. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now here Peter pulls out for us four particular identifiers for us as followers of Jesus. Four distinct ways of seeing who we are from God's vantage point so that these would be the most important things that identify us. That these would be the true identity of followers of Jesus in the church First of all, he says a chosen race. Now, Peter didn't make up these descriptors. He didn't make up these identities. And he just said, I'm just going to pull four random identities out from just my mind's hat somewhere and apply those. Peter here is rooted in the scriptures. And what he shares here, these identities are taken from the Old Testament scriptures. They were applied to ancient Israel and identifiers that God spoke over ancient Israel, but they are true of the church today. This is, as God's new people, this is who we are. Continuity with God's work. Here's exactly who we are. So he, he describes us as a chosen race there at the beginning. And this is taken from Isaiah 43, 20 and 21. God speaks of us being a chosen race. He's speaking of a distinct people selected out of all the nations and peoples. A distinct race, a distinct group that he has chosen. Israel was that distinct race, that chosen race. From all the nations, Israel, God placed his affection. He began to set his mark upon the people of Israel and say, these are my chosen people. He didn't choose Israel based on the fact that they were the largest nation or the most wealthy nation or the most prominent or the smartest or the best. No, God, when he said of Israel, you are a chosen race, he elected them not based on anything within them. He didn't look at Israel and go, wow, they are like, if I don't have Israel on my team, we're going to lack altogether. No, he chose a small, tribal, nomadic people. So here's my chosen race. And he's, and he's chosen us, the church, uh, today as well. This is what God has done for us today. 
you and I, believers in Jesus Christ, we are as well a chosen race, not based on our ethnic backgrounds, not based on where we live or the borders of our lands or anything like that, but no, God, before the foundation of the world, the scripture says, he chose to save a people for himself, not based on who they were or who they are, or their race, or their gender, or even their good works or religious things, but God, purely out of his sovereign love and mercy, chose a people for himself. That's who we are. The church, all true believers in Jesus, are that new chosen race, as Peter describes us. God elected us to himself, rescued us from our sin and brokenness, pulled us out of our rebellion, and the destruction we were headed to. Think about this. God has loved you so much to select you as his own and to make you his, not because you were lovely or worthy, but because of his loveliness and worthiness. He saw you and he said, yes, you are mine. We are a chosen race. Furthermore, he describes us as a royal priesthood. Again, another description. This is from Exodus 19, 4 through 6. Peter here takes it one step further as we think about a chosen race, but yet within the race, within the nation of Israel, there was even a, a more distinct group, a holy priest, a royal priesthood. Here Peter describes us in that way, the church, as this royal priesthood to all who believed. He describes us as royal because we are priests unto God and Christ. We are part of the kingdom of Christ. Christ being our king, our lord, our ruler, our master. And so because we are a part of his kingdom, our priesthood, if you will, is unto him, the king. Royal priest unto him. And if you think about the job or the role of a priest, the priesthood was there existing to be a mediator between God and the people to display how to worship God, to lead in the worship of God, to display that God is our all in all. People of Israel, the priests, had no possession unto themselves. They had the role of leading and showing and sharing the worship of God. They lived as sacrifices unto God, and that is who we are as well. The priests declared the nature of God and the goodness of God to the people. That's what Peter reminds us of in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. He says, you, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is our identity, who we are. Lead worshipers unto the Lord with all of our lives, with all that we are, for his glory and for his name's sake. Furthermore, a third descriptor, a holy nation, again from Exodus 19. This speaks to the culture of God's people of who we are. What do, we, what do we look like? How do we live? What's our, our, our makeup? What's our character? When he describes us as a holy nation, he's saying we are people set apart for God, yet distinct in the way we live. Holy. The, the word holy there has the idea of being set apart, separate, different. So we are not like this world. We are distinct from this world. But the idea of holiness also has the profound reality of being morally pure and righteous. The way we display who we are distinctly in the world is by our character, by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, the virtues of holiness in all the world. 
That's how we display who we belong to and who we are. That we are holy unto the Lord, distinct, set apart for him. Which builds then on the fourth identity descriptor here. A people for his own possession. Who do we belong to? We, we love and, and dive in deep to an autonomous way of life. I mean, that's just kind of the DNA fabric of, of our culture and our makeup. We love to say, I'm independent. I'm beholden to no one. Like, no one is my boss, except my literal boss, but only on, you know, Monday through Friday, 9 to 5. Nobody else is the master over me. I, I am an original man. Nobody can tell me what to do. I'm going to live my own way, do my own thing. I'm free. And I'm t- autonomous. But here, notice for the church, for the follower of Jesus, that's not our true identity. Our identity isn't for us to do whatever we want, to live however we want. We are a distinct people for his own possession, which is to say we belong to God. We're his. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, you are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We're not autonomous. We're not independent. God, by virtue of the reality that he created us, owns us, has rights over us, but doubly by the virtue of and reality of the fact that Christ came and died for us, he has double purchased us unto himself. We belong to him, a people for his own possession. Exists for him. Now you might say, well, that's very limiting and constrictive and narrow. It doesn't feel freeing. It doesn't feel like a real identity. Friends, I would tell you that this is the truest, most free, most beautiful identity we can have. To be loved by God, to be changed by Him, to be taken from the despair and the darkness that we were under to be taken out of the mire and to be given a new reality, a new position, a new identity is so freeing and beautiful. You don't live unto yourself, but you live unto Christ who is your Lord and Savior and your love. You don't don't exist for yourself anymore, but you exist for him. Who are you? You are his people, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people for his own possession. And I would ask you, brothers and sisters, this morning, does that identity match the way you live, match the way you think? Is this how you perceive yourself in all the world, first and foremost? Is this how you're identifying yourself? As in Christ. But not only that, notice that each of these things, they're not individual terms they're communal. They, they exist and call us all into this as the followers of Jesus Christ. Every one of the pronouns here are second person plural pronoun. They embody all of us together. So you all, us together are a chosen race. We together, the church is a royal priesthood. We the church are a holy nation. We the church are a people for God's own possession. This is how he sees us. This is what he calls us into. 
We can't just live these things individually on our own or possess these identities by ourselves, but corporately together, we are pursuing this identity and growing in it. I see this illustrated so well in the power of adoption. One of my good friends, a friend by the name of Paul, he's adopted several children out of India, and he adopted, he and his wife adopted them when they were older, not infant babies, but when they had some life experience and uh, some years under them in India, and they were adopted out of very desperate, horrible circumstances and situations. He brought those children into his family. Those children's names were changed. Their identities were changed. Their entire worlds were changed. No longer did they live under the former way of life in India that was so hard for them and broken. But now in the midst of a loving family, they grew in their identity. It just shows me and reminds me so much of how God has adopted us through Christ into his own family. We were at the worst places, rebels against him, hostile to him, enemies of his, going to war against God, which is a war none of us would ever win, headed to death and hell and destruction. And by his love and mercy, he called to us in Christ said, come to me, all you who are weary and broken. And there Christ died what we deserved. Christ took our penalty on himself. He took our sin. Through faith in him, we are adopted into his family. And now we are no longer strangers and rebels and aliens and hostile and under the wrath of God. But we are now. Christ, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. So who are you? What is your identity? Are you identified by Christ and what he calls you and what he's done for you? Or by the ways of this world? The church is beholden to Christ and to Christ alone. That leads us to the second question. If that's who we are, then the second question that we need to think through is, well, why are we here? What's our purpose? What am I doing on this planet? What are we, the church, doing here? What do we exist for? Peter, after laying on thick the nature of our corporate identity, he deals with the reason that we exist. If you were to write down on a piece of paper that you have uh, there with you this morning, if you were to write down the answer to the question, why are we, the church here, what would you write down? If you were to write down that question for yourself, why, what would you write down? The biblical logic of our identity, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, leads to the biblical logic of our purpose. And it's one small word there in verse 9, that. Here's purpose statement. This is who you are in order that, or so that. What is that? That you Again, corporately, but yes, individually as well. You, the church, the people of God, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What a a profound and yet very clear statement about our purpose. You and I exist as followers of Jesus Christ so that you may proclaim his excellencies. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The word there, proclaim, has the idea of broadcasting out or or publishing abroad. It's like marketing, 
advertising, letting people know, declaring, saying, just sharing everywhere we can, here's a reality. What's the reality that we're proclaiming? What are we talking about? Peter here makes it very clear. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The excellencies of him. Some translations say the praises of him. The word is the high character and virtue of who he is. His excellence. I love to think about this in the way that that I think about lights shining on a diamond. If you've ever seen a a really incredible diamond or just, you know, some of you ladies are engaged and married and you have those diamond rings there and you look at that and as light shines on that diamond from different locations or different places, there the facets of that diamond shine in different ways. It's still the same diamond, it's still brilliant, but you see different refractions of light through that. You know, it's beautiful and profound and glorious. That's what we as the church are proclaiming, the different and degreeing and peculiar glories of Christ in the world. We're displaying and declaring to the world, here's how lovely Jesus is. Here's how he's excellent in this way. Here's how he's glorious in this purpose. Here's how he's amazing here in this manner. We're declaring Christ and his fullness and all that he is for us. We're broadcasting Jesus is this satisfying. Jesus is this good. And notice here Peter doesn't say, our purpose is, you exist, that you may proclaim how everyone in the world should live and behave and act and vote and think. He's not telling us to proclaim ethics, although that's part of living in Christ. He's telling us to proclaim a person. The world doesn't need to see and hear from us ethics. They need to see and hear from us about Christ because he is the one who changes hearts and lives. Christ is the one who transforms who we are. So when we display and proclaim abroad the glories of Jesus, when we proclaim Christ as Lord and Savior, as we declare his distinctive, awesome realities, his excellencies, his praises, the world is transformed. And the way we live displays his glory. Peter brings us down to the reality. Why should I proclaim Christ? Why should I make and and declare his excellency? Because he called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, the bedrock of the gospel. You and I were hostile to God, living in darkness. We were under the sway of this world, under the prince of the power of the air. We loved the kingdom of darkness. And it was to our doom. And yet, God loved us. Christ came for us. And he lived the perfect sinless life that we were called to, that we were supposed to, but yet we chose not to. We rebelled against Christ, lived to win righteousness for us. Perfectly. And he laid down his life. He took the penalty, the doom, the hell that we deserve. Going to the cross and dying in our place as a substitute and a sacrifice for us. Christ died for our sins. He was raised to life again on the third day. So that everyone who puts their hope in him completely will have the hope of life forever will be transferred from the kingdom and domain of darkness into the kingdom of his marvelous, brilliant, eternally satisfying light, life. 
Has Christ done that for you? Do you realize that? Have you seen that in your heart? Because that's the most profound change in all the world. And if that's true, if you've believed that, you'll broadcast that. You'll share that. I love the story of the demon-possessed man in Mark chapter 5. This man's life is a wreck. He's possessed by a legion, thousands upon thousands of demons. He's out of his mind. He lives in caves among the dead. He hurts himself, tries to kill himself. His life is completely broken. And Christ comes to him. He casts out the demons and heals him. And his life is changed. And, and people in the community get word of this work that Christ has done. They know this demon-possessed man. They know his way of life. They know the horror that he's inflicted upon himself. And they come to check it out. They've heard Christ has healed him. He's changed. They come to see. And then they find a man healed in his own right mind. Gloriously saved. And as Jesus gets in the, the boat to head across the Sea of Galilee to go back, the man says, Jesus, I want to follow you. I'm going to come with you. Like, is there space in the boat for me? I want to give my life to you and go. And what does Jesus say to him? Let me read it for you. Mark 5.19. He did not permit him. Jesus puts a hard no in front of him. Like, no, you're not coming with me. What? He wants to follow you, Jesus. Like, you're going to say no to him? Jesus said no. But he said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. Now he's had mercy on you. Friends, if you've been rescued by Jesus, if you've been brought from darkness into his life, you don't have to have a profound theological education to share his excellencies. You don't have to even know a lot. All you have to know is how he had mercy on you. And share that with your friends. I was lost in my sin. I loved my wickedness. Christ met me in that, and he saved me by his cross. He can do the same for you. Go and share with your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. That is what it means to proclaim, to broadcast the excellencies, the brilliant realities of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That is why we are here. That is why the church exists. To shout to every corner, to every neighborhood, to every country, to every community, Christ is brilliant. He's glorious. He's the only Savior. Come to him. Have you seen that he is this good? Do you know of his mercy and love in your own life? Is Jesus good and lovely and admirable and worthy and desirable to you? If you say yes, broadcast, proclaim. Christians, the church proclaims his excellency. And yes, that is my job. That's what I love to do every week, but that is our job corporately. You're in on this as well just as much as I am. I like how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, you are to be advertisers of the praises or virtues of Christ, not only to know them and to be glad to know them, but to make them known to others. Who are you? Chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You are God's people. Why do you exist? Why do we exist? Claim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It leads us to the third question. Where are we going? 
Well, I want to reframe the question because I think to figure out where we are going, we have to know where we have come from, where we've been. How did that happen? Because for the Christian, knowing what God has done for us, knowing our past and his greatness and his grace propels us forward. Why, why do we struggle with sharing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus? Why do we struggle sharing and worshiping so much? Why do we struggle with adoring him in all things? It's probably because we're not looking back to see what he's done for us and remembering that and being fueled by that reality. So I'll, I'll say it this way. We need to know what God did so that we can know where we're going. We need regular views on the gospel goodness of Jesus, on the glory of Christ and what he has done for us to motivate and propel us forward. This is what verse 10 says. We must know what God did. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And Peter just lays out the stark contrast of our lives in the past and our lives now. Our, who we were and were not as peoples before and who we are today. And to do this, he invokes a story, another Old Testament story, the story of Hosea and Gomer. Hosea's wife, Gomer, God told Hosea to go and marry an adulterous, promiscuous woman. She conceived children out of wedlock, out of faithfulness with Hosea. And God, in using Hosea and his story as an illustration to the larger nation of Israel who was unfaithful to God, their husband, he was pulling out some realities. So these children come along, and God tells Hosea, name them. One named Lo-Rahamah, another named Lo-Ami. Lo-Rahamah means no mercy. Lo-Ami means not my people. God was just saying to Israel, this is how you've acted, and... You're not my people. There's no mercy here. And Peter picks up on that, and he wants to just jog our imagination and say, think about that, because that's who you were. In our rebellion, in our sin, and choosing our, our own identities and living our own ways, we just displayed we didn't belong to God. We were our own. We may belong to civic nation. We may have things that define us here and now, but we're not a people. That's what, what Scripture points to. We're just scattered in the world, lost, dead in our trespasses and sins. Once you were not a people, but now, Peter wants us to see, here's now what God has done for us in Christ. But now that reality has changed. You are a people. You're God's people. You rebelled, and now... He's rescued you. Well, how did he do that? He did that in Christ coming for us. Once we had not received mercy, apart from Christ, you're doomed. Apart from Christ, you will go to hell. Apart from Christ, you're under the wrath of God. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope in this world. But in Christ, if you've turned from your sin, in Christ, if you've banked your hope on Jesus alone, in Christ, there is fullness of mercy. God has set his love and affection on you. Apart from Christ, no mercy. But in Christ, fullness of mercy. Look at how Jesus has loved us. He died for us. He laid out his blood for us. He shed his precious blood on our behalf. And this is the reality of the good news. 
In Christ, we have been made a new people. In Christ, we are recipients of all of the mercy of God, all of his grace, and it's an unending mercy and love. Think about that. You and I deserve hell. You and I deserve God's full wrath. And God says, I sent my son for you. I love you. And he's poured out his mercy on us. Was that because we deserve it? Because we're people that should receive mercy? Because we're so excellent and wonderful and worthy and lovely? Not at all. He shows us his love and mercy because that is who he is. He pours out his love and mercy. So we must know what God has done. And we must get regular views of what God has done so that we're motivated forward with where we go. Have you seen what God has done for you in Christ? Have you embraced the sacrificial work of Jesus, knowing that you don't, understand, you don't stand under God's judgment and condemnation anymore, that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? Have you embraced this? I think this is one of the reasons why being in a life group is so important and having Christian community around you is so important, to regularly get your eyes back on the good news of Jesus. Because I, I struggle to remember it. I go through days and weeks where my eyes aren't on Christ and what God has done, and I start thinking about other identities and other purposes, and it just becomes a mess, and I need a friend, a brother, my wife, a sister, someone to say to me, look what God did. It's not who you are. It's not where you're going. All because of what God has done. Brothers and sisters, friends this morning, who are you? Why are you here? Where are you going? We as a church are a new people made for the glory of God, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to a lost world, all because of what God has done. Is that how you're defining your life? Is that how you're believing your life to be about? Is that what you are getting regular gaze towards? Believers, the church, we are God's redeemed people. Let's build our lives around those realities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and kindness to us. We deserve nothing good, and yet you have given us all of your goodness. There's more to come. Lord, I pray that you would help us rethink, reframe, re-see who we are. I ask, Father, that you would cause us and shape us to live under the purpose for which you've given us. And Lord, by looking back to the reality of what you've done for us in Christ, might that propel us forward greater love and mission and service to you and to the world around us. Help us not just be hearers of your word this morning and go, well, that's nice, but change us, Lord. Let us live in these deep identities. Let us be distinct for your purposes and your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.